Welcome to The Stone Wolves, a Galactic Football League novella. Written by Scott Sigler and J.C. Hutchins. Performed by Scott Sigler. The Stone Wolves is also available as a Kindle ebook from Amazon.com or as a full-length audiobook from Audible.com. To find links for those items, go to scottsigler.com slash thestonewolves, one word. Happy New Year, junkies! Happy New Year to you. Welcome to 2022, a year with so many number twos in it. We hope the year isn't just a giant number two, dropping another big deuce on us like 2021 did. I hope the year with the three twos will be a great year for you. A Real Girl and I are pumped up to finish projects, bring you new stories, we're redoing our website, and hopefully, finally, fire up the engines of the PUV James Kaling for its book one launch. As always, our New Year's resolution is very, very simple. And that resolution is to entertain your fine ass. That's what we do. We entertain fine asses. You have a fine ass. Therefore, we hope to entertain you. Let's get you caught up on the story so far, and then we're all going to go blow a noisemaker. Previously on The Stone Wolves. Fanaka has led Killian, Beans, Aya, and Zan to the borehole, a secret prison deep in Kretorakian territory. Fanaka's inside contact has directed them to a little-used maintenance airlock. The team must rendezvous with that contact and prepare to take on the facility's guards. Chapter 13 Enhanced Questioning They passed through the facility's airlock without incident. Killian wondered how many Quith had once worked this asteroid. It was big, that was for sure. Probably held a complement of at least a hundred permanent workers. The tunnel walls and ceiling were raw stone, wide enough for heavy equipment to easily move through. The floors were finished roads beat up from countless years of traffic, but as functional now as they had been when the miners had abandoned the place. The tunnels had breathable standard atmosphere, but the overhead lights were either no longer working or shut down to save energy. The only illumination came from various panels of equipment mounted in the tunnel walls, bits of glowing red or green or blue. Beans's and Zanschmecks had sensor suites that let them see their way through the dim light. Aya and Fanaka wore night vision rigs. As for Killian, ever since he'd served on the Keeling, he'd been able to see in almost anything other than absolute blackness. He hated every step he took away from the Oleron, away from the ability to lift off and get the hell out of there. If this was a setup, if Sakakorn, or someone who had found out about her double dealing, was about to spring a trap, Killian and the others were in big trouble. If something like that happened, Killian knew, the contact would try to kill Fanaka and anyone she'd brought with. As in most covert operations, when it came to attempts to sweep things under the rug, the sentients left alive were the ones who controlled the narrative. Keep going, Fanaka whispered, a little bit farther. Killian heard her through his combud. She led the way, killing behind her, then Aya, with beans in the rear, clonking along in his combat schmeck. 
Zan's flying drone stayed near Beans, motors quiet but still audible. Zan had chosen to outfit her flying schmeck with a green teddy bear head. No body this time, just the head, tufts of white stuffing dangling from the torn neck. Killian and his crew continued on, blindly following Fanaka, blindly trusting Fanaka. He had been in tighter situations, but most of those were decades in the rear view and, due in part to the Nasdor, were memories of memories, scraps of aged wallpaper that suggested a pattern but were too small and too faded for the mind to make sense of them. Surely the stakes had been bigger in a lot of missions from back in the day, yet that did little to dampen his anxiety. Back then, he'd been with the Krizatu, with fellow revolutionaries who killed without hesitation and who had no useless remorse rattling around in their hearts. This was different. Aya and Beans and Zan weren't heartless killers. He didn't want them to suffer for his sins or be locked up in the borehole for his missteps. And, of course, he was currently on that very same Nasdor, the drug that, hopefully, continued to stop him from being a heartless killer. Killian did have one trick up his sleeve. Zan's physical body remained on board the Oleron. She could react to new developments. If Killian, Aya, and Beans were killed or captured, if all hope was lost, Zan could abandon them and stay free, stay alive. More than anyone else in the universe, Zan deserved those things. And yet, no matter what happened, Zan would never abandon them. When it came to her family, she did not run. Fanaka, Killian said. We've been walking for 15 minutes. I'm getting nervous. How much farther? He, Fanaka, and Aya wore soft-soled boots to cut down on sound, but there was no hiding the heavy foot clanks of Beans' metal feet or the droning servos of Zan's schmeck. Another minute or two, Fanaka said. Stay sharp. The contact's info says the area should be empty, but it does get some normal use. They made the turn, and automated lights came on. Or at least, tried to. Cut night vision, Killian said. Only a few of the light strips, some 20 feet above, still worked, and those that did were dim, as if they hadn't been replaced since the quith had left, and time had taken its inevitable toll. Reminds me of Laramie 3, Fanaka said. Don't you think so, killer? Killian ignored the question, instead fighting against flashbacks from the day he'd rescued her from Thorn. Why had she brought that up? Was she trying to activate the beast inside him? A stupid question. Of course she was. Because that beast could, most likely, make short work of whatever defenses this place had. The beast could save Redwire. The beast could keep Fanaka and his crew alive. For a moment, perhaps a half-heartbeat. Killian wanted to have a very special vial in his hand. A vial that was hidden inside his quarters along with other dangerous relics from his past. A vial that could instantly reverse the body-wrecking effects of his Nasdor meds. He wanted to be off the leash, to let go of this ridiculous mantra of not killing. He wanted to protect his crew. No, he could never let that monster out. Other soldiers fought in wars, but you, killer, you were war. Never let that monster out. Ever, he whispered. Ever what? Aya asked. You okay, Skipper? Killian blinked, brushed off the momentary lapse. I'm fine, he said. 
Keep moving, everyone. They continued down the wide, dimly lit tunnel. I am bored, Bean said. Are we there yet? Killian sighed, knowing Fanaka should ignore the Sklorno, knowing she would not. Not yet, she said. Another ten seconds ticked by. How about now? The Are We There Yet game was one of Beans' favorites, but now wasn't the time for games. Beans, Killian said, shut your furry ass up. The Sklorno fell silent for a moment, but it didn't last long. Sorry, Skipper, but that's not exactly accurate. Nope, nope. My people have anuses, but not asses, per se. Asses require butt cheeks, which... Killian gritted his teeth. Shut your anus up, then. But, Skipper, I'm obviously not speaking through my anus. Both of you knock it off, Fanaka said. The rendezvous point is up ahead, past that right-hand bend in the tunnel. Killian waited for a moment, ready to yell at Beans if he spoke up or at Aya if she decided now was the time to join in, but neither said a word. The corridor steadily grew more and more humid, from a light sense of dampness to an almost cloying level of moisture. There was likely ice in this big asteroid, ice that was dug out and melted down, either for the water itself or to be separated into oxygen and hydrogen. If it weren't for the presence of the prison, this asteroid would be a smuggler's dream. His decades of illicit trade had introduced him to many unlikely locations in which to hide plundered cargo, stolen military material, bootleg gin or other booze, and the occasional political dissident or refugee caravan. The tunnels and pockets within mined asteroids like this one were ideal for stashing contraband or hiding out from authorities. There were thousands of resource-stripped asteroids very much like this one spinning out there in space, Killian knew. Most of them had been mined for metals by the ever-resourceful Quith many years ago to build the race's mighty Orbital One station, which they populated in 2332. About 50 years later, they activated OS-2, the byproduct of even more mined asteroids. When the Quith developed punch-drive technology, they started sending the asteroids themselves through punch space to continually expand OS-1 and OS-2, as well as build OS-3. But before faster-than-light travel, it had taken centuries to build an orbital station. Most of the pre-FTL miners knew they would never see their home planet again. The Quith were perpetually a patient, methodical species. From up ahead, around the bend, he heard the thrum and growl of heavy machinery. Fanaka picked up the pace. Killian and the crew followed suit. What greeted them around that bend was quite spectacular. The mist-filled cavern was clearly an engineering area of some kind. Killian suspected the elaborate catwalks and enormous vertical pipes represented a keynote in a much larger power, air, and humidity distribution system. For an asteroid this size, maintaining an environment that was optimal for multiple species likely required constant measurement and automated management. After the time in the tunnels, the scope of the cavern provided a reminder as to how big the asteroid was. A few pipes let out occasional jets of steam. At ground level, several large mining mechs. The machines were maybe three meters wide and heavy, with four solid, jointed legs, yet were only two meters high at most, squat to the ground like two-ton mechanical crabs. 
Some even had claws that added to the comparison, metal scoops with thick hinged lids. The mining mechs looked beat up and well used, but also looked like they'd been maintained. They were probably used for excavation and or to dig up ice that had been trapped in the asteroid for millions of years, if not billions. With their crab legs, they could walk on the surface of the asteroid or in rough, newly excavated areas as easily as they could on the wide roads that ran through the place. Oh, Bean said. Look at all this hardware, just waiting to be requisitioned for a very special Beansy project. These are standard self-driving rigs, Skipper. I can remote into their control and send one back to the Ulleran for vivisection. I could give the Ursa Major Schmeck a great big claw. Beans wanted his combat Schmeck to have a shovel claw? That made no sense, but then again, the Sklorno had a way of seeing things that others did not. Nobody touched nothing, Killian said. We're not here to get new toys. A human stepped out from behind one of the mining crabs. She spread her hands to her sides to show she was unarmed. That's our contact, Fanaka said. Sakakorn, if that's who this was, was unusually tall for a human woman, about six foot eight, only a few inches shorter than Killian. Short gray hair, pronounced wrinkles around her eyes and the corners of her mouth. Very pale skin, a towerite with some out-system ancestry to darken the native bleach-white tone, perhaps. She wore a simple gray uniform, unadorned with rank or insignia. The woman stepped closer. She didn't seem afraid as much as she seemed cautious. Her eyes shone with the unmistakable gleam of greed. She glanced around the group. A cape? What is this? A costume party? Fanaka flipped her jacket behind her right hip, exposing the pistol holster there. Don't worry about our clothes, Fanaka said. Worry about getting us in. The tall woman looked her up and down. You in charge? Fanaka started forward, but Killian gripped her shoulder and pulled her back. My associate here is in charge of the overall operation, but inside this facility, I run the show. Fanaka tried to turn to face him, to argue with him. He squeezed, reminding her that even with the Nazdor, he had strength to spare. Fanaka scowled, but stayed where she was. The contact stepped up to Killian, who'd taken the lead position among the crew. You look familiar, the woman said. Anyone ever tell you that you look like Quentin Barnes? Killian shrugged. I get that from time to time. I wouldn't know. I don't watch sports. The woman's face wrinkled further, her eyes squinted a bit, as if she was not only evaluating him, but examining him as well. If we're going to pull this off, she said, you don't lie to me again, understand? Could the woman know the truth from just looking at him in this dim light? Maybe. It didn't take a punch-drive scientist to see the family resemblance. That expression on her face, the cold confidence. While Killian couldn't be sure how the woman knew Quentin was his son, he was instantly certain that she did, and with that understanding came a stab of fear. In an instant, she became a potential threat. A threat to Quentin. A powerful threat that worked for the Empire. A powerful threat who was breaking the law who, if she was caught, might do or say anything to save herself. A powerful threat who was willing to risk her own life 
to sell information for money. Killian decided to level the playing field. Whatever you like, Dr. Sackacorn. The woman's eyes widened. You bastard, Fanaka said. You goddamn lying bastard. Killian knew he'd made a mistake. The words had come out, and it was too late to take them back. He had broken his word to Fanaka. Sackacorn took a step closer to Killian. If the woman was afraid, she didn't show it. Just be careful with that name, she said. There's a lot of prisoners here who have significant financial resources. Your trick creating the trench warfare ship confused the hell out of the staff here. The fighters and transport craft are already back. Pilots are probably in debriefing now. The warden will tell them to keep their mouths shut about this. You won't be able to pull that off again, but something tells me that's not the only trick up your collective sleeves. After this, they'll fix all the errors I'll use to make this breakout happen so there won't be another escape, but if you play your cards right and don't put me in danger, a creative crew like yours can help me bring information in and take it out. We'll all make money. There's plenty for everyone. If I don't wind up in a cell here myself. You get me? This wasn't a sentient who had made a deal with Fanaka on a whim. Chalita Sakakorn knew exactly what she was doing. She was smart. She knew the risks. Some sentients put their lives on the line for a cause. Some did the same for profit. Who was Killian to judge? I get you, he said. She reached into her pocket. Aya and Beans aimed their weapons at the woman. Sackacorn froze. It's just a data cube. Killian nodded at Aya and Beans, who lowered their weapons. Sackacorn was telling the truth. She pulled a data cube from her pocket, handed it to Killian. That contains a cipher and a location for a coded info drop, she said. If you send a message there, I will get it. Eventually. If you don't get a response, that means I'm not interested in whatever deal you're offering. The first thing you will send to that drop is a way for me to contact you if an opportunity comes up. I trust you're smart enough not to use my name. Killian had no intention of ever dealing with this place or this woman again, but if Sackacorn thought there was more business in her future, she would be more cooperative. We're smart enough, Killian said. Aya held out her hand. I'll get her the contact info. Killian gave Aya the cube. She pocketed it. Now that introductions are out of the way, he said, let's get on with it. What's the plan? Sackacorn didn't seem to hear. She was staring at Aya. Business isn't the only reason you can reach out to me, the doctor said to the girl. I get personal time every now and then. Maybe you and I could swap stories about dangerous people. Hi, one. Sackacorn was hitting on Aya? Now? This isn't the time for romance, Aya said. Or whatever it is that you're offering. Steal in Aya's voice. She clearly had ample experience dealing with people who fetishized her for the color of her skin. Killian wanted to protect Aya. But the girl had shown time and time again that she didn't need someone else to do that for her. In the climate-ravaged world of 2072, the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects its fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. 
in a time when the world outside is unsafe. It's vital for Piura's existence that people rally behind the purpose of the city, and Demetria Lopez, head of the city's public relations, tirelessly promotes its idyllic image. But when she stumbles on a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Piura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Martha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Sackacorn smiled, lust in her eyes. If you change your mind, you know how to reach me. We don't have time for this, Killian said. Tell us the plan. With obvious effort, the doctor tore her eyes away from Aya. The look of lust faded, replaced by a hard-eyed stare. I hope one of you is good with computer systems, she said. Killian tilted his head toward Aya. She is. The doctor's hungry eyes again flicked toward the girl. You better be sure, Sackacorn said. It's not a personal computer. It's a full-on, it's a Nemeric, Aya said. I know. I'm an expert. Just show me to a terminal and tell me the commands, and I'll do the rest. Sackacorn glanced at Fanaka, raised an eyebrow. An expert, huh? That's lucky. Very lucky, Fanaka said. Stop stalling and get on with it. Very lucky indeed. Something was still off about that. Killian couldn't put his finger on it. Goldman is what we here classify as a primary captive, Sackacorn said. High-up political prisoners are kept isolated, so there's no chance for them to interact with other inmates, possibly get messages out somehow. Primary captives have a cell block all to themselves. Cell block doors remain closed and locked, with a guard inside station there at all times. The locks are electronic. There are manual locks, but only on the outside, so that in a potential riot situation, prisoners can't lock themselves inside the cell block. The only time someone goes in or out of a primary captive cell block is to bring the inmate food, to bring the inmate out for enhanced questioning, or for a doctor visit to their cell. Considering the amount of enhanced questioning they give to primary captives, doctors, like me, visit quite often. Fanaka bristled. Killian's temper flared, tried to fight past the NAS door. Enhanced questioning. Kratorakians speak for torture. The guard on duty right now is Nathan Carmago, Sackacorn said. 
He is a bully and he's lazy. We timed this out. There's a maintenance tunnel with a direct link to the main Nemrick central controller. That terminal is near the access hatch I use to get back into the main corridors. The hatch is in a security blind spot. I broke the camera there a year ago. It's still not fixed. Killian held up a hand. It's not fixed? After a year? How is that possible? Because Arlie Kabesh is in charge of monitor maintenance and she doesn't give a damn, Sackacorn said. I know she put in a funding request to get it fixed, but I think she pocketed the money that came in for it. There's a dozen broken cameras spread across the facility, along with defunct monitors, routed dead spots. As long as bad inspectors don't see the problem, it doesn't matter. Nothing happens here. No one is worried about such things. If that was true, it was good news. For all the amazing stealth technology out there, and the incredible talents of people like Aya and Zan, a covert operative's single best tool was complacency. Sentients so bored with their duties, they didn't pay attention to details. I leave you all at the hatch, Sackcorn said. Pretty Purple here manages the terminal. I go do a normal exam of Goldman. Exactly three minutes and 15 seconds after I go out the hatch, Pretty triggers a monitor shutdown in Goldman's block. I take out Carmargo. At 3 minutes 20 seconds, Pretty triggers a second command, turning off monitors facility-wide and opening all cell doors. That will trigger the riot alarm. Non-guard staff moves to a pre-designated safe room. I'll join them there eventually. Killian's stomach began to churn. All the prisoners released? A riot? How many sentients would be hurt? How many killed? The route I have laid out for you will keep you away from most of the prisoners, but not all, Sackacorn said. How you get by any you run into is your business, but you need to do it fast. Get Goldman, get back to the access hatch, and seal it up before our timer hits ten minutes total. At that point, I believe, the guards will retreat to their own safe bunker and they will trigger facility-wide knockout gas. That will put the prisoners out. The gas will not be released in the maintenance tunnels. Here's the best part. I have a subroutine that will also release the gas in the guard's bunker. Once they push that button, you have all the time in the world to get out of the borehole. If you need to stay to make sure there's no approaching ships, fine. All you need to do is put the surviving prisoners back in their cells and shut the cell doors. Everyone will be locked in, including me. For how long? Fanaka asked. Twenty hours minimum, Sackacorn said. That's long enough that I get to be locked in with the others, and with the bump on my head, no one is going to doubt my story. Eventually, all of us will be questioned by outside investigators, but I'm one employee out of 54, and I am a very, very good liar. The doctor was oversharing and excited to do so. Killian wondered how long and how hard she'd worked on this plan, perhaps waiting for just the right prisoner to come along so she could cash in. Intricate but efficient, Fanaka said. Let's get at it. Sentients were going to get hurt. Fanaka didn't care. Killian did. You'll take Carmago out, he said. How? Sackacorn pantomimed a gun with her hand, put her fingertip against the back of her head, flicked her thumb down. He sees me every day, she said. He'll never see it coming. She would put a bullet in the brain of a co-worker, 
If she would do that, there was no limit to what she would do to Killian and his crew. No, Killian said. We're not doing your plan. We'll find another way. His words surprised Sackacorn, who took a half step back. Don't be stupid, she said. I know how this place works. You don't. You have no idea. This plan is perfect. Anything else is going to get me arrested or killed. Killian shook his head. We're not killing Carmago or letting prisoners kill each other. Fanaka stepped closer, grabbed Killian's arm, grabbed it hard. Screw your newfound morals, she said. We're here. We have to make this happen now. You don't know anything about this place. She does. We go with her plan, and that's that. Did Fanaka think she was still in charge? Did she think the 30 years gone by meant nothing? Maybe. Or maybe she'd been giving orders all that time, and save for a few more wrinkles and some more gray hair. Her world was the same as it had been when she'd been in the Krizatu. We find another way, Killian said. Don't test me. Fanaka's eyes widened with rage. She actually reached for her pistols. Killian didn't have to react, didn't have to do anything, because Beans instantly aimed his weapon at Fanaka's head. Bad idea, Beans said. Zan buzzed to Fanaka, who stayed stock still. The flying Schmeck extended mechanical arms, pulled both of Fanaka's pistols from their holsters. I will maintain possession of this weapon for now, Schmeck Zan said. You can have it back when Skipper says so, and not a moment before. Fanaka and Sakakorn both knew they had no chance against Killian and his crew, and each of them seethed in their own skin. This is idiotic, Sakakorn said. You're going to be the death of us all. No, Killian wouldn't let it come to that. He didn't want anyone to die. But the lives of his crew came first. We see what our options are, he said. If we have no choice but to implement the doctor's plan, we will. But I'm not ready to accept that yet. Doctor, take us to that terminal. Before we start pulling triggers, let's see what my people can come up with. This is the terminal, Sackacorn said. Pretty Purple, you tell me what you want to see and I'll bring it up. You and I working together can make sweet music. People like Sackacorn made Aya sick. The woman's eyes devoured Aya, looked her up and down like Aya was a meal, not a human being. First of all, how old was Sackacorn? Fifty? What did she want with a person young enough to be her grandchild? But that was a stupid question. I knew exactly what Sackacorn wanted. The same thing so many others wanted. I was a grade-A super genius. She'd been told that enough times, even as a small child, and had seen the indisputable truth of that for herself when she'd been in the Fafner Project. Yet people wanted her instantly, powerfully, not for her mind, but because of the way she looked, because of the things she had absolutely no control over. People wanted to use her. So why not use those people? If Sackacorn could be manipulated, Aya was going to manipulate her. That was far better than letting the idiotic woman argue with idiotic Fanaka and idiotic Skipper. Seriously, why were old people like that? 
fighting about money when they were trying to orchestrate a breakout from a secret imperial prison? Aya didn't want to die, ever, but she hoped she never got old enough to be that stubborn and stupid. Thank you, Aya said, flashing what she hoped was a shy smile. But it's better if I do it myself. My hands work faster than my mind. I bet your hands work fast. Aya wanted to punch the woman in her leering face. Instead, Aya glanced down as if Sakakorn's comment had embarrassed her. Step back, doctor, Killian said. Purple will ask you if she needs help. His voice had that tone again, that timber of cold metal that left no room for argument. Sakakorn glared at him, perhaps thinking she would argue, then realizing anew she was alone in the narrow access shaft with dangerous sentience who had come to break out an imperial prisoner. Purple had better know what she's doing, Sakakorn said, or we're all busted. Skipper nodded, flicked his fingers forward twice, shooing Sakakorn away. The tall doctor stepped away from the terminal. You're up, he said to Aya. Find a way. Aya stepped up to it and got to work. Skipper was trusting her to look for a solution, and that required a lot of trust because Sakakorn was right. Any mistake could trigger internal alarms. For all Aya knew, these narrow maintenance tunnels could fill with flapping, armed Kretorakians. She and her crew would be captured at best or, more likely, killed outright. That wasn't going to happen. This was Aya's chance to show she belonged. She put her hands on the controls. Nemeric systems had holographic interfaces, as did most computers, but also relied upon tactile connection. Working on one was more akin to playing a highly sensitive musical instrument than to typing into an old-fashioned keyboard. In an instant, Aya felt at home. She'd been training on a system similar to this for years, spending countless hours getting to know the Nemeric's trademark synaptic emulation and brain biomimicry. She lost herself in the controls, eyes reading the holographic and flat panel display. In mere seconds, she'd slipped past the primary interface and accessed the internal code base. Wow, Sakakorn said. I've never seen this. How did you do that? No lust in her voice now, just sheer amazement. It made Aya smile, and not in a shy way. This kind of control, this mastery, it was what Aya had been born for. She quickly sorted through the command code, careful to avoid anything that would show her presence to the prison staff. She saw the code for Sakakorn's commands, the surveillance dropouts, the riot alarms, and the knockout gas hijack that would put guards down at the same time it put the prisoners down. Sakakorn wasn't an elite programmer by any stretch, but her work was far from that of an amateur. She had hidden the commands, buried them so deep that almost no one outside of Aya's skill level would ever detect them. The doctor's plan seems solid, Aya said. I don't see any tricks or traps. This is solid work, Skipper. I'm impressed. That's good. Skipper said. It means we have a reliable fallback if you can do what I asked you to do, which is find a better way. See if there's a way for us to do this without triggering alarms. Where there are alarms, there are sentients shooting at us. Aya nodded, let herself slide deeper into the code. She also didn't want to see anyone die. 
Could she trigger the knockout gas without anyone knowing? No. The physical valves were tied directly into the alarm system, so that wouldn't work. Could she control the facility doors? Seal everyone in where they were, then open the specified doors needed to reach Goldman's cell? Yes, but it would be difficult to do it all quickly. And, as with the gas, doing so would likely trigger hardwired klaxons. She went deeper. Something with the main landing shaft, maybe? No, there didn't seem to be an angle there. Trigger fire sensors or incoming missile protocols? Cause confusion that would let Skipper go get Goldman? No, there were safeguards and protocols in place for that. It was too risky. Cut the power altogether so Skipper could operate in the dark? That was possible, but then emergency backups would activate. And there it was. The thing that she needed. I got something, she said. I think I can shut off the power plant. Skipper perked up. Shut off the power? Won't automatic backups kick on? Battery power, emergency generators, cell block doors auto-locking, that kind of thing? Normally, yes, Aya said. But the Nemeric is designed to emulate a human brain. And there's a sloppy bit of code here that allows me... Well, it's hard to explain, but I can make the computer forget that it's supposed to activate those backup systems. Whoever set this up got lazy. Instead of redundant neural pathways to ensure automatic data flow, they only have two nerve connections for the backup activation. I can unlock the cell block door, cut those two nerve connections off, then shut down the borehole's main generator. Aside from the emergency lights with built-in batteries, this place will go completely dark. Sackacorn leaned closer, staring, thankfully, at the interface and not at Aya. I've never seen command lines like these before, the doctor said. I didn't know these existed, and I know more about this system than any of the staff, even the League of Planets expert techs that come out from time to time. Skipper leaned in as well, but his eyes glazed over instantly. He had no idea what he was looking at. Aya, he said, how long will it take you to make that happen? She shrugged. About ten seconds, maybe nine, but there's one catch. The artificial gravity here is an old system. Ancient, really. It's not the newer kind that's built into the floors. It's powered from the central generator. When I cut the power, gravity goes out. That didn't seem to bother Skipper in the least. In a way, that's even better, he said. More confusion for the guards. Sackacorn, how often do the guards train for zero-G actions? The doctor's lips pursed out slightly as she thought for a moment. There's a group of 20 Kretorakian guards, including their bosses, who act as interrogators, Sackacorn said. I don't think a lack of gravity is going to bother the flapping little beasts. As for the rest of the staff, everyone here gets trained on zero-G escape when they first get hired, but that's it. I was hired here 14 standard years ago, and I've never had refresher training. As far as I know, it's the same for the guards. Trained once when they get here, then nothing. Aya shook her head, marveling at the ineptness of this place. The borehole administrators were so confident that the location alone would protect them that they seemed to ignore basic military requirements. Aside from the bats, which were a major concern, the rest of the staff would probably struggle with efficient zero-g movement. When it comes to military operations, Skipper said, 
I've learned to never underestimate the effects of boredom and laziness. Not unexpected when credit rockings use non-bad forces. No one likes working for the little bastards. Sacacorn, what's the staff compliment here? I need the species breakdown. The doctor rattled off the stats. In addition to the 20 Kratorakians, there were 29 guards, 14 human, 9 key, 5 female Sklorno, 6 Kratorakian fighter pilots, along with a maintenance crew of 2 humans and 1 heavy G, 4 human medical staffers, Sakakorn included, a janitorial crew of 4 Quith workers, 7 human admin personnel, including the warden and the 2-person crew of the Carcelero, all hailing from the League of Planets. League Winglickers, Zan Schmeck said. Why am I not surprised? Everyone waited for him to process the information. If we do this, he said, could the same tactic ever be used again? He was asking what the administration would do after the fact. I couldn't tell you, Aya said, but this coding flaw will be pretty obvious. They'll fix it, Sackacorn said. The warden is a political animal. She'll hang some coder out to dry, say that now it's under control. Skipper looked at the doctor. Will they also find your commands? For the first time, Sackacorn seemed shaken. This was a person used to knowing all the answers. I'm not sure, Sackacorn said. She looked at Aya. What do you think? No sexual suggestion or desire in the woman's eyes now. Depends how deep they go, Aya said. As I mentioned, your coding is good, your commands are hidden. My guess is that unless they recode the entire brain emulation from scratch, all of your commands will stay hidden. Skipper clapped his hands twice. We go with Aya shut down, he said. If we fail and have to get out of here fast... Even if we have to clear out of the system for a while, we have Sackacorn's plan as a fallback. Zan, give Fanaka her weapons back. Aya, call up a facility map. Sackacorn, tell us everything we need to know. If I get surprised by the things you did not tell us, it will not go well for you. Aya, if you pull this off, next time we're planetside, all your drinks are on me. Aya did as she was told. Skipper was proud of her, and that felt good. Not just good, it felt amazing. Better than anything had felt in a long, long time. You have been listening to The Stone Wolves, a GFL novella. Written by Scott Sigler and J.C. Hutchins, performed by Scott Sigler. Follow Scott on Twitter and at Instagram where he is at Scott Sigler and on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Scott Sigler. The Stone Wolves was directed by A. Sigler. Engineered by Steve Rickyberg. Copyright 2021 Empty Set Entertainment. Theme music is the song Battle Cry by the band Super Weapon.
Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.